We are going to be in Mark chapter 4 eventually. It's going to take me a while to get there, though, this morning. Um, Let me start, though, and just say I love the Gospel of Mark. It has been just a delight over the last few months to walk through the first four chapters of Mark. We've got a long ways to go. We're going to be here maybe until Jesus returns in the Gospel of Mark, which is not a bad thing. But this is an amazing, amazing book. It's, I've studied Mark for many years, really decades, preached different sermons from it. And the more I study it, the more I understand how Mark presents Jesus and how he tells stories, the more it amazes me. And the, sto- the stories are just good. Like, Mark is a good storyteller. He's the guy when you're you know, sitting around the fireplace on a cold Minneapolis winter night, you want him to tell stories. You know, tell us about that. Tell us about that, Mark. And that's what it reads like. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 4 today, but I'm going to take a little bit of a less traditional, or a little bit less of a traditional approach to this text. We're not going to, I'm not going to preach through the text. And I know that's a little bit concerning perhaps for some. Scott's not here, so I can do that. Um, the reason I'm going to do that is a year ago, we had a guest speaker here on Thanksgiving Sunday, uh, Rick Gamash, who's a friend and a pastor in Burnsville, and he preached on Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And some of you might remember that, some of you might not. It was a fantastic sermon, like just one of those sermons that just nailed the text, was encouraging, he was deeply pastoral, handled the text well, explained what needed to be explained in the text, and so I confronted him last week and said, hey, i got to preach this text, but you already kind of like did it well, and I don't really want to be compared to that because I don't think I can follow up trying to take the same approach. And so I've decided to do something a little different. Rick's message is called Lord of the Storm. If you want to take a, you know, listen to a more traditional message on this passage, you can find that on our website. Just click there and you'll find out the little banner that says sermons and find Rick's sermon from about a year ago. It's a fantastic message. Go re-listen to it. Um, You'll discover a beautiful and complimentary approach to this text to what I'm going to do today. But since Rick preached that excellent message, I'll first commend that to you. But I'm going to do something a little bit different with this sermon. So hang on. Keep your Bibles open. We'll be in Mark 4 eventually, but it's going to take us a little bit of time. Question first. How many of you love the ocean? Any big ocean lovers? Yeah? A few of you. All right. I think there's different reactions to the ocean or the sea or like sitting on the shores of Lake Superior if you're a Midwesterner. There are those who deeply, deeply love the ocean, and they could sit on a beach for day after day after day after day, staring out into the vast waters and be perfectly content with their toes in the sand and the sun beating down on them. My mother and father and sister, um, the rest of my immediate family are like this. They can sit there on the beach for like endless, endless hours. They love it. They absolutely love it. There are others of us, and this is where I land here, who are bored stiff by the ocean. It, it just doesn't do it for me. I, I look out, okay, there it is, and it doesn't change really very much. The waves all look very similar. The view is the same. I would like to go see something else. And so when I go to the ocean with my family, um, I'm restless and bored, which is true of many things when I'm with my family, and my family is sitting there staring at the ocean, and I'm just, can, can we do something else? Can we play a game or go for a walk or something? Because this, 
just doesn't do it. Anybody like that? Like you're kind of bored with, all right, there, we're going to form a club. There are others then, there is a third group who are scared stiff of the ocean. The ocean or the sea or even lakes frighten them. My wife's family is like this. They are not a seafaring folk, the Gosho family. They wear multiple life jackets whenever they're in the smallest body of water and fear the ocean. It's not their destination point. In fact, there's a word for the fear of the ocean. It's called thalassophobia. Anybody here thalassophobic a little bit? Okay, some of you are thalassophobic. You didn't know you were, but now you have a title for it. In fact, sometimes when I'm online, I'll find these like clickbait things about reasons to fear the ocean, and I found some of those. Let me show you some of those. Like, that's one reason you might be afraid of the ocean there. Let's go to the next one. There's, there's another reason there. Some of you are like, yep, that's, that's the reason why. Let's see what's next here. Yeah, that, that would cause some fear. Maybe the next one here is an interesting one. This is a coral reef that somebody's swimming over where there's just this giant hole. Some of you are like getting clammy hands just kind of viewing that one. Go to the, go to the next one here. This is a, like, it look, just a crazy island there where it looks like there's an underwater cliff and it just, you can swim across that. And that would not be fun for someone who is philosophic. Go, go ahead and go to the next one here. Just a picture of the power of the ocean. Go ahead and click the next one. And that's actually Lake Superior, so not the ocean there, but our, our own Lake Superior with its power and majesty and glory there. All right, last one here. All right, there you go. So not, not a real picture there, just a, an image from Perfect Storm that I'm pr- quite sure is significantly digitally enhanced. Um, so for some of you who used to enjoy the ocean, you now fear the ocean after looking at those pictures. Some of you who were bored by the ocean are you know, not just bored, but scared. Um, you're now philosophobic. That's the term for the fear of the sea. The first century Jewish people, as, as a group, were not lovers of the ocean. They were not known as a seafaring, seagoing people. In fact, the sea to their west, the Mediterranean Sea, which, as you know, feeds, in, uh, feeds and is fed into uh, the Atlantic Ocean, the sea was a source of fear for the people in Jesus' day, the Jewish people in Jesus' day. They were not the Phoenicians or the Minoans that your high school history teacher wishes you could remember. Those cultures were seafaring people. They built trade routes and ships and mastered the sea and built wealth and empires around the ability to travel on the sea. But that was not the Jewish people of Jesus' day or prior to that. The sea to their west was to be feared. And it started very early in the history of the Jewish people. In the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, Genesis 1, gives this portrayal of creation. It's a familiar passage. Many of you know it almost by heart. Creation, at at creation, there's this darkness before God speaks. There's this darkness on the face of the waters. This dark abyss. This watery expanse. And God separates the waters. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's this chaotic imagery. The water represents chaos. 
The sea, as one commentator says, was associated with the primal waters or the waters of chaos suggested in Genesis 1-2 by the term deep. It was to be feared. In fact, the Hebrew word there, to home, is related to another word called Tiamat, which is the name of a sea monster from whose carcass the world was created according to the Babylonian mythology. Now, I'm not saying that God created the world from the carcass of a sea monster, but other cultures had that. This chaotic battle in the sea resulted in the earth being formed. And here God speaks and separates the waters. He brings order to the watery chaos. God brings order to the watery chaos. Genesis 1-6, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So while other cultural creation stories like Babylon's tell of this epic struggle between gods or between gods and monsters that resulted in the creation of the world, there's no struggle here. The Genesis narrative implies no struggle. God simply speaks and the waters obey. Order is brought to chaos by God's word. Creation is God bringing order to the chaotic waters. So who commands the seas? God does. God, the creator, speaks, and disorder becomes order. Chaos becomes order. Who commands the seas? The creator, God, commands the seas. Later in the book of Genesis, as humanity has spread and begun to rebel against God, God judges through water. Genesis chapter 6 through 8 of that famous story again of the flood, Noah's Ark, that uh, some of you love and remember. It's almost a story, though, of the opposite of Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God brings order to the chaotic waters. And in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, God decreates. He judges by allowing the waters to come back together and judge humanity for their rebellion and wickedness. Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 and 12 say this. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. So because of the evil of humanity, God removes his restraining hand and chaos reigns once again, bringing judgment to most of humanity for their wickedness. The water represents judgment. But God, thankfully, is merciful in this. He rescues one family, uses them to create again by separating the waters, bringing dry land to them, and ordering the chaos after the flood again. Who commands the seas in the flood narrative? God, the judge, brings the waters in on judgment, separates them again so creation can abound once again. Later in our Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 14, the Israelite nation had been enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and through some miracles, some of them involving water, God has given his people freedom and they head towards the promised land celebrating, but Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his armies after them, so they're fleeing from Pharaoh, so they're not brought back into slavery or killed, and they hit the Red Sea. The water's in front of them, Pharaoh's army's behind them, they're going, what shall we do here? We are doomed. 
Exodus 14, 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. You hear creation in there? And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I love to imagine this scene. I haven't watched um, Charlton Heston's portrayal very often, but it's hard to get that one out of there, right? Just the water, like the wall. It's just powerful. God rescuing his people, and as the Egyptian army comes in trying to catch up to them, God releases his hand, the waters come in, and the army is destroyed. Water saves God's people here and judges God's enemies. Who commands the seas? God, the Savior, commands the seas. God commands the seas. In fact, throughout your Old Testament, throughout what Jesus would have had as his Bible and the disciples would have had as their scriptures, over and over and over again, the theme of God's sovereign command over the waters is made explicit. Over and over and over again. It's a repetitive theme throughout the Old Testament. And you see this often in the poetic books of the Old Testament. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, Job says, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. I love that. How do you trample a wave? You know, I've been at the beach when I'm bored and trying to figure out what to do. I'm sitting there, and you just, you can't control those waves. They, they control you, right? You can't trample the waves. You can try to jump over them or dive through them, but you, trampling the waves, who can do that? God alone. Job chapter 26, verses 11 and 12. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at God's rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. Psalm 29, verses 2 through 4. The psalmist calling God's people to worship God says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. What controls the waters? The voice of the Lord. God. Psalm 77, this narrative, poetic narrative of beautiful passage here. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. <laughs> the, well, I don't know what the opposite of philosophobia would be, like what the waters afraid of God would be, but if there's a word for that, that's what would be here. The waters were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. You can hear the Red Sea narrative being referenced there in Psalm 77. Psalm 89, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who commands the waters? The Lord God of hosts, the sovereign ruler of the universe, the creator, the redeemer. Psalm 107, 
Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away with their plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and delivered them, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. I love the Psalms. They're so, like, they're just beautiful language, isn't it? The waves of the sea were hushed. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, would have known those passages from Job and from the book of Psalms very well. Likely would have had many of them memorized, would have sung them with God's people. Peter wrote this after Jesus' death and resurrection in 2 Peter chapter 3, kind of summing up some of those earlier passages that I read. Peter says, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In creation, God commands the waters. In the flood and judgment, God commands the waters and is merciful by bringing people through the waters. In salvation, the exodus, God rules over the waters by his voice. Chaos is brought to order by the word of God. The waters are calmed. So, Mark chapter 4. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And there were other boats with them. And a great windstorm arose. And the boat was filling with water. God, I need a little help here. But Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Have you, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Now, I don't know if you can put the pieces together of what I just did there. Who is this? This isn't just Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph. There's something significant about him. Who commands the seas? God. Who just spoke and the seas obeyed? Jesus. Do the math. Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? 
This is the Lord, your God, in your presence. Can you imagine being one of those disciples? Seasoned fishermen. They know what they've been out on the water. They've been through storms before, but this one's bad. This one's really bad. The waters are coming up. The boat's filling up. They're taking a bucket. They're trying to bail it out, but it's not happening. They can't keep up with this squall. We need more hands. We've got to do something. Where's Jesus at? He's asleep. Who sleeps during a storm like that? Someone who can get up and say, peace, be still, and the storm stops. Notice that the disciples ask a couple questions in here. I love the questions in this passage. The first question that they ask him as they're scrambling towards him while he's sleeping and waking up out of his slumber, don't you care? Now, that's a very fair question, isn't it? That's a good question. The boat's about to go down. They're about to die in the depths of the sea, and Jesus is asleep. If you were asleep in the back of the boat, as our boat was tossed and turned on Lake Superior, and you're sleeping and I'm trying to scramble and bail the thing out, I would say, don't you even care that we're about to die? It's a fair question. But... What's the answer to that question? Do you not care, Jesus? The God who created the world, who brought order to watery chaos, cares for his children. Jesus took on flesh because he cares for our plight. Jesus went to the cross because he cares. But the disciples have not put that together yet. A few verses earlier in Mark chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus, was, while he was teaching, said to them, Do you not understand? Don't you understand what's going on here? Don't you understand what all of this is, who I am and what I'm about to do? The disciples have yet to understand, and when you don't understand Christ's sovereignty over all things, you question his care for you, and you live life afraid. Do you not care? Why are you still afraid? (laughs) Of course I care. Do you not care? Do you not understand? That's a battle of questions between Jesus and the disciples. Because to understand who Jesus is and what he would do, to understand his power and sovereignty, to understand his identity and his compassion and care, is to know that he cares for us. Do you not understand? Do you not care? I love those two questions. And then later on, the disciples conclude this passage by asking the question that Mark really is asking throughout his entire book, who then is this? Who in the world is this guy? What, what is happening here? They're, they're scared. Because Jesus asked them, why are you afraid? They're, who is this? Who is this that can speak and the winds and the sea obey? This is not some fraud or charlatan miracle worker who can do some nice tricks. They're, those guys are out there. They were out there in Jesus' day. This is not that. This is more. Because Try commanding the wind. Try commanding the seas. You can't. You can't. You're at their mercy. And yet Jesus speaks, and they obey. This is not a fraud or a charlatan. It's not just some powerful miracle worker. God would work miracles through many different people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, some of those guys in the boat would perform miracles by the power of Jesus. But Jesus is not just a powerful miracle worker. All those Old Testament passages that we went through, That means something. Those are fresh on the disciples' mind. They're in the front of their brains. God alone commands the sea. 
Jesus just commanded the sea. This is not just a powerful miracle worker. This is not just a wise guru or teacher, even though in the rest of this chapter, Jesus has taught brilliantly with parables and sayings and taught people about the kingdom of God. But he is way, way more than just a wise teacher. This is not just some compassionate hippie who likes to sit with kids and smile and tell fun stories and some of that imagery that we have. Who then is this? This is your God. This is God in flesh. This is our all-powerful and yet caring God. Behold your God. Asleep on a cushion during a storm. So why are you so afraid? Jesus asked that to the disciples. It's a fair question for us, too. We're afraid because we don't understand. We don't understand. When you're caught in fear and terror in the world, it's because you don't understand the sovereignty of God. Now, I don't want to dismiss fear. There's legitimate reasons for fear. In fact, the disciples were filled with great fear, and there's a reason to be afraid of Jesus, a good, healthy fear. Why are you afraid? They, haven't, they don't understand that Jesus is both powerful and Compassionate, that Jesus commands and he cares. Yes, Jesus is compassionate. He invites us to cast all our cares on him. Yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly, but he's also the Lord God Almighty, and he is in complete control of everything. It's so good to see Jesus' compassion. Do you not care? Yes. But sometimes we need to understand that Jesus rules over the storm, over the chaos. Sometimes we need to know that the water is fine. So do you see what's going on here? It's much, much more than a simple acknowledgement that Jesus is uniquely powerful. Jesus rules. Jesus is God. The Old Testament has a similar story to this. Uh, you're probably familiar with the story of Jonah. The waves come up. He's in the boat. He's asleep some, for some reason. I'm not sure exactly why. It's not because he can command the sea. But in order for the seas to be stilled, back in Jonah's, Jonah's day, the mariners have to actually perform a sacrifice. They cast Jonah into the depths of the deep, and God stills the storm. Jonah can't still the storm. Here, Jesus just speaks. And I don't know how he speaks. I, I, sometimes I think of him as like angrily rebuking the wind. It's like this battle between some wizard sorcerer like conjuring up. It's not like that. That's the image I have though sometimes. I think it's just simple. Peace, be still. And it obeys. Jesus didn't have to appeal to some higher power here. Right? He didn't have to conjure up some spell and mix some potions and perform anything. He just had to speak because as God, his voice controls the waters. A few chapters later in Mark chapter 6, verses 49 and 50, the disciples find themselves in a similar predicament, but this time Jesus is not with them. Uh-oh, <laughs> right? Because they can't stop the seas. When they saw him walking, though, on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were, once again, terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, or the Old Testament name of God, I am. Do not be afraid. Take heart, God is with you and rules over the chaos. 
Whether that's the chaos on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, whether that's the chaos in your life, God rules. Jesus is God. He is with you. And he rules over it. As the last book of the Bible, Revelation, unfolds, the resurrected, glorified Jesus who has died for his people, who has rose again triumphing over the grave, who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the resurrected, glorified Jesus is seen in the book of Revelation as sovereign over the waters in an even greater measure. And it's fascinating. Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus' voice and the vision that John has, Jesus' voice was like the roar of many waters. That's great. Some of you who've been studying Revelation with me are familiar with that passage. This last summer, um, Nate and Phil and I took our daughters up to the Boundary Waters as we've done the last few summers. This time we went to Johnson Falls, one of my favorite spots in the Boundary Waters. It's beautiful falls there. and We spent about two, maybe even three hours just swimming in this pool. It's, under, it's over your head when it goes underneath the falls. This is actually about as low as it will ever get because it was during that dry spell last summer. And we just had a blast swimming here. Um, we decided to play Marco Polo during this. Uh, I don't remember if you girls remember that, right? And uh, I found a great way to win playing Marco Polo underneath Johnson Falls. <laughs> um, the trick is, you know how to play Marco Polo, first of all, right? Somebody says, Marco, you say Polo, and they got to try to find you and get you. And, you know, out in that clearing, everybody's just scrambling around. All you have to do to win is go under there and stand underneath one of the waterfalls, which is, uh, you know, about up to my chin, but over the girl's head, conveniently. And then when they say Marco, you say Polo, and they can't hear you. Why? The roaring waters muffle out all other sounds, and they don't want to go in the deep end, too. So they're just kind of flailing around there, and I just stand there having a nice shower. It's a beautiful spot. The roaring waters. I love waterfalls. I love the beauty of those kind of places. And Jesus' voice is like that. It's not just controlling the waters. It's as powerful as the waters, even more powerful than that. Later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 6, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like bright as crystal, like crystal. The crystal sea is not threatening here as Jesus sits on his throne. The crystal sea is beautiful. It's not threatening. It's calm. It's peaceful. Revelation 21, verse 1, the sea was no more. Throughout the book of Revelation, as, as, as evil is coming against God's people, these evil beasts come up and come against God's people. Where do they come from? They always come from the sea. And at the end of the book of Revelation, where Jesus is triumphant and he is with his people, the sea is no more. God's enemies have been judged in a lake of fire, and now there is no, nothing to fear. Revelation 22, verse 1 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, again, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The waters have now become purely a source of light and life and not a threat to God's people. Jesus has triumphed over the seas of chaos. He has brought order eternally to our chaos. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk wrote this, said, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's what we have to look forward to. 
if I can give another false dichotomy here, I think there are two types of people when you go to the sea or the pool. There are those who are the toe dippers. You know the type. Some of you are that. You think it might be too cold. There might be sharks. I saw that picture, and I'm a little scared, so I'm just going to dip my toe in the water. I'm not ready to get in. Just give me some time. About half of my family is like this. It takes them a good 45 minutes to an hour to get into a pool. Usually once they're in, it's about time for us to leave. There's kind of this caution, maybe a little fear. And the disciples' reaction in Mark chapter 4 was one of fear. They were filled with great fear. And this reaction isn't strictly wrong. The problem is that it's incomplete. When you understand that Jesus, yes, is the God who created and reigns over the storms, you should be afraid of him. But when you also understand that Jesus is all-powerful and he is enfleshed because he cares, it should bring deep, profound, lasting joy and gratitude to your soul. Because the God who created the world, who judges evil, cares for you and would go to the cross for your salvation. God has come to us. That's what the disciples were thinking when they asked the question, who then is this? As they're bailing out the boat, scared to death, trying to keep from dying, Jesus speaks, rebukes the wind. And the disciples say, who then is this? God. God is somehow with us. God has come. How is that possible? What has happened? It's really just a a drop-the-bucket moment where they probably fall to their knees and go, what what is happening here? Because the idea that God is with us can either be terrifying or it can be supremely comforting. And the disciples are terrified. But when you understand Jesus' compassion, his love, his salvation, his sovereignty over the waters, his identity as Lord God of the universe is a joy. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation maybe about your parents or about something that you didn't want your parents to hear when you were a kid and then you realize that your parents heard it. Do you ever have one of those kind of things? We used to have like these phones. Uh, those of you who are teenagers, our phones were like we had one phone for the whole house and you could pick up any of these phones and still hear the same conversation. So sometimes your parents would like pick up the phone and you'd be talking on the other line. Or, you know, our, we had these little foam board Doors are pretty cheap, so they could hear conversations. Sometimes you have this conversation or you say something, and then you realize your parents heard it. Your parents were with you. And that can, if your parents weren't very loving, that can be an incredibly terrifying event. But if you understand your parents' love, their care, even when you've said things that you didn't mean to or said things that were wrong, there's trust. Hope in that. In the Mark's book, he quickly moves to the next day and another astounding interaction, which Abby's going to unpack for us next, next uh, week. But just imagine the boat ride back on that calm, crystal sea of Galilee. I, I wonder, did Jesus just like rebuke the wind, have his little interaction, and then go, guys, I've got to go catch, finish my nap here. And the disciples are just, what? Who is this? Who are we with? I don't know. Did the disciples just let the boat drift for a few hours while they just sat there with their jaws on the floor? Maybe. 
God was with them. And he showed that he cared. So there's the toe dippers who are concerned about the water, maybe have a little bit of fear. And then there's the plungers who just jump right in and say, come on in, the water's fine. They get to be at the beach. They get to be at the pool. They don't care what the temperature is. There's joyful gratitude. In one of those psalms that I read earlier, as uh, the psalmist portrays the glory of God and his power over the waters, the reaction of the people ends this way. Psalm 107, verse 30. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. A few hundred years after the psalmist wrote that, Jesus would do that. With fear, because of who Jesus is, the disciples, I'm sure, were glad. They were safe. They were not going to die. And as we'll see next week, they made it to the other side. So Psalm 107 says this, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. My friends, you have a God who has come to be with his people, who has power over all things, and who cares for you. Praise the name of the Lord. Well, how do you get there? How do you get to the point that we can say, though the storms rage, yet will I trust you? I think something is found in the question Jesus asked earlier in this passage. Understand him. Meditate on Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Sing about Jesus. Hear Jesus preach. Worship Jesus. Understand that Jesus is God and came as man because he wants to save sinful, rebellious people. Don't you care? He cares. He cares. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come to be with us. You have come as our Savior. You have come as Lord God in flesh. The God who spoke the worlds into existence, who created order out of chaos, who tramples the waves, came to be with us so that you could go to the cross for our salvation. And in light of that, Lord, we have nothing to offer except our joyful praise and gratitude. Help us to be in awe of you and captured by your love. Amen.